Uh, if you're new, the Bible's in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you've got one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. And if you have a smartphone, which someone just called me yesterday and they're getting a brand new smartphone. And they said, what is that app? And I said, Uversion. So if you have Uversion, you can download that. Uh, you can click on live. It'll bring up Element with the sermon notes and everything. And you'll just be set to go because it's awesome. Now, uh, Wednesday nights we were doing a thing called Financial Peace University. It's a money class because we all need to figure out what to do with our money because we all spend it on stupid things all the time, me included. Uh, but, so we, ha- we have a lot of people coming to it, and, but the one thing we're having a lot of problems with is finding enough child care. So if you're like, oh, I got my money situation all taken care of, I'm great, I'm set for life, good for you, teach us how to do that. But also, why don't you come and help out with the children on Wednesday night? Uh, we, we need some preschool and some nursery care, and so if you would be willing to do that, in the back there's a specific sign-up sheet for Wednesday morning or Wednesday nights. And so if you would be so cool as to help us out, that would be great. Uh, Christy's kind of scrambling to get people to try and fill some spots. And so we really need it, especially for the people who are trying to figure out, like me, what to do with our money. If you took a baby bottle to help out CareNet, uh, they are due next Sunday morning. So if you'd remember that this week, fill them with change, bring them back. All the money goes to CareNet to help out them helping young girls who are in crisis. Bring it back right in the back. You put it there. We will return all of those to CareNet next week. Uh, If you normally attend Sunday night services, there's not a Sunday night service next week because apparently we are taking it off for the God of the Super Bowl. (laughs) Seriously, we just keep getting all this, uh, hey, uh, can someone cover for me next week because uh, I'm not going to be there. Well, duh, I know why. It's Super Bowl. So if you normally attend uh, Sunday night service, come and talk to me after this morning, and I'll talk to you about something that we're going to do special for you guys since you normally go there and just so you don't feel all left out. So. Now you're like, oh, I should go to Sunday night service. That's something special. Why don't you stay on there and read God's Word? It's all nice and toasty in here. I'm like, ah. I, I'm always cold. My wife says I'm always cold. Now I'm feeling kind of warm, so you must be just burning up, which, which is funny. Uh, this is Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, and it says, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that as your people, we would be those who welcome those around us. That we would be those who welcome the way you have welcomed us into your family. And that the way that you call us to love would be a great glory to who you are in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series called The Missing Words. This is week three. Uh, The missing words are words that Jesus left intentionally unsaid to convey a deeper meaning. Now, many rabbis actually did this. Sometimes they would do this to increase the impact of a statement that they were saying. Rabbis would quote part of a scripture and then let their audience fill in the rest. It was common for rabbis during Jesus' day to put brief quotations and distinctive phrases of scripture just out there to see what people would kind of do with them. Now, Rabbi David Wolf, he writes this, Rabbinic documents are densely elusive. Not because the rabbis were straining to display erudition, meaning their knowledge of all the things that they had in their head, but because the rabbis were educated Jews and as such lived those texts. The stories and the laws of the Bible were common coinage. They were the yardstick against which life was ceaselessly measured. 
And so what he is saying is that rabbis weren't always trying to show off by doing this. They're simply communicating within the framework of the scriptures that they knew so well. Jesus did the same thing. If you open like a Thompson chain reference Bible, you can see all the things that Jesus is constantly quoting from the Old Testament throughout the Gospels. Jesus did not reserve this technique for the religious elite people. He gave it to everybody, his disciples, everywhere he went, the crowds, building questions from common people. He constantly did this. Sometimes his references were obvious. Sometimes they were very subtle, maybe only a word or two. In fact, there are times that when knowing the thing that Jesus didn't say becomes as important as knowing the things that he did say. So the passages from which Jesus quoted provide a background for understanding him and his teachings much more fully. If we miss this, sometimes we miss out on his point altogether. Now, I could say certain things to you like I could say uh, the bloody glove. Right, and you would think, oh, white bronco, O.J. Simpson, guilty. You know, you you would you would like think think all that because you're part of the culture. You understand certain things that are being said. You can put in the missing words. Now, Jesus didn't do this all the time. Do not think I'm saying, oh, there's missing codes in the Bible, and you got to go figure it out. No, those are for crazy people. All right, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that when the scriptures were written, if you were a Jew, you were raised in one of these homes and the scriptures were a deep part of your life. And so when Jesus taught, you would instinctively know and understand some of the things that he was saying. And so we are now 2,000 years removed from that historical context. So to get a better idea of what's going on, part of what I wanted to do over the next few weeks is just spend some time with you with some of these missing words. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 13. Today I don't got a lot of humor, sorry, but I got some interesting stuff, I think. So we'll see how this goes. Now, Matthew is a gospel. It is written to Jews. It's the most Jewish of all gospel accounts. Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God promised a Messiah is going to come, the anointed one, the Christ, to redeem his people. He talked about this as a son of David, as a second Moses, Deuteronomy 18.18. Moses says, someone like me will come. And so Matthew is trying to show you that Jesus is that person. And you find most of these missing word statements in the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's talking in parables. Now, parables were known to rabbis as agada. It's like, in agada de vida, right? It's like, I got a song for every week. It's just kind of crazy. But there, it was a way that communicate with, with word pictures and illustrations. Many rabbis taught this way. It wasn't just Jesus. So Matthew 13 starts with Jesus telling a parable about different types of soils. The disciples go up to Jesus and they say, why are you telling all these parables? And so Jesus explains knowledge, kingdom of God. And then he explains all the parables and details to the disciples. And he says, because, you know, one day you guys are going to have to go out and teach and let people know what the kingdom of God actually is. And so he says, I'm going to set you free and you're going to go and do that. So then Jesus talks about some more parables and another parable and another parable. And eventually he gets to verse 31 in Matthew chapter 13. And he says this, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. It's kind of like, you know, the mustard seed. Is a, I wasn't going to do this with a Japanese accent, but I thought I'd offend somebody. You know, it's the smallest of all your seeds, but it becomes a large tree, Rondai. You know, large in comparison with a tiny seed. You know, large in comparison, you know, to how it started. Enough for the birds, grasshopper. It, that, that's kind of the thing. Jesus is making a connection between the small beginnings taking place under his ministry and the kingdom of what it will be in its future glory. Even what it's like today, where when done right, it is worldwide, bringing glory to God, bringing hope and help the world over. 
And though the initial appearance is this tiny little seed and it may seem inconsequential, and this is where the emphasis is, the tiny seed then leads to the mature plant. In the same way, our lives are to continually look towards the kingdom of God and the legacy, not only that we live now, but the legacy that we will leave behind us when we are gone. And then he gets to verse 33. He told them still another parable because the first hundred weren't enough. And this is where you get to the missing words. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And the general thrust of this parable is the same as the one before it, just like the mustard seed. The kingdom produces gigantic growth out of all proportion with its insignificant beginnings. But where the mustard seed suggests extensive growth, right here, the yeast shows intensive transformation. Intensive transformation. The yeast doesn't grow, it permeates. It, it affects all of the dough that it comes into contact with. Despite the small quantity, it causes the entire thing to rise. And as God permeates us as his people, that should cause you and I also to rise up. Transformation, so we become the kingdom of God. Full understanding of who he is as God speaks to us as his people. Now, I am not reading into this, and I'll show you why when we get to the missing words. There is something very odd here because almost every opportunity that Jesus or even all rabbis got to talk about yeast, they talk about it as a negative thing. Matthew 16, 6, Luke 8, 15, Luke 12, 1, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Galatians 5, 9. It's all bad except here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So you have to ask yourself, why in the world does Jesus talk about it positively in this instance? And it's because of the missing words. The words, a large amount of flour, they literally translate as three seahs of flour. If you have an, an English Standard Version, the ESV, it actually says three measures of flour. Much better translation. Jesus saying this would actually refer his listeners all the way back to Genesis 18 and Abraham and Sarah and an extravagant meal that they prepared. So open to Genesis chapter 18. Again, hope you find this interesting because I do. Uh, in Genesis 18, what happens is that God shows up to speak to Abraham again. Now, many scholars believe that in Genesis 18, when God shows up to talk to Abraham, God shows up. It is literally God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, a lot of people, it's kind of funny. You talk about Father, Son, everybody's cool with that. You talk about the Spirit, and people just get all weird. It's like, oh yeah, that's what it's all about. Other people are like, ooh, let's not talk about that at all. When it, it, it's not about the Spirit, it's about God, who God is. The Father points to the Son, the Son points to the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit points to the Father and the Son. Now, I'm going to take a long way around to get to my point, so stick with me. I, I think you can handle it, and you'll be smarter when you walk out of here, but to get the whole idea of rising and transformation and understanding, we've got to take a long way around. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates man. And God speaks in the plural. Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Okay, for Christians, we understand this as the beginning of our understanding of the Trinity. When God makes people, He makes us male and female. And don't mistake me here. Don't think I'm getting all hippie and weird on you or all crazy. But, but God is male and female. God is father and mother. God is holy. God is not like us. God is one God, but He is more than one thing, if that makes sense. Now, there's this very poor analogy that people use that God is like H2O. God is not like H2O. God is like God. He's not like H2O. So that's why it's a very poor analogy. But in one sense, you think of H2O. You have steam and you have the liquid and you have ice. None of those things alone is H2O. All of them are. Now, you, you have what Israel gets to in their great Shema in Deuteronomy. They say, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
The word for one is the word echad. It, it literally means singularity and plurality. It's, it's used of a cluster of grapes. Many clusters, or one cluster, many grapes. It's also used of how a husband and wife are to be one flesh. It's also where you get the idea of how the church is many people, but it's supposed to be one body. This is the idea. Well, Judaism, when it gets to Genesis 1.26, it doesn't know what to do with let us. And so there's much ink spilled and there's a whole lot of bad blood that goes on about it. And so they started to say, well, there must be other parts of God that aren't creator God. It's why you get the book of Proverbs and wisdom is a woman and her name is Sophia. In Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, it says, by wisdom, Sophia, the Lord laid the foundation, the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. So it's, it's not God, but it's like some sort of extension of God. It's like mental gymnastics because they don't know what to do with Genesis 1.26. And so there's like there's a wisdom of God, and then there's a presence of God, and then there's a glory of God that cannot, cannot be fully described. This glory was called Shekinah. It means the ineffable or that which cannot be explained. And so as Scripture progresses from Old and New Testament, we realize they're struggling with the concept of the Trinity, with Father, Son, and Spirit. After Easter this year, we're going to spend three weeks on Spirit. I think you'll learn a lot. We'll look how Jesus looked at the Spirit. So the Jewish faith tried to let people know that there is a deeper understanding of God that is altogether unknowable. It is why God must reveal Himself to us. It is why you and I don't get to go on like a vision quest and find God. God finds us. God reveals Himself to us as His people. And so they're trying to wrestle with this concept. But them wrestling with the concept is not Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism is where you have to go eventually. I mean, today in the world you hear all religions are alike. They speak to the same God. They just have different cultural contexts. Well, it's not true. Religions differ in their view of God and man. I mean, one of the things that Mark says as different is our view that God has been revealed to us. It is not something that we figure out. God reveals himself. And why does this matter? Because eventually we will become like what we fall down and worship. Whether it's ourselves, whether it's Allah, whether it's the God of Mormonism, or whether it's Jesus. We worship the triune God. So where does the Trinity begin? Genesis 1. Okay, Genesis 1. But where is it more fleshed out into full understanding, full transformation? Glad you asked. Genesis 18. If you have an ESV, that's what I'm going to actually read from this morning because it does a much better job of translating word for word in this. And so this is where Genesis 18 starts like this. And the Lord, this is, this is Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. It is singular, okay? And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now Mamre is in Hebron. Here's a picture of one of the oak trees in Mamre. So they're just these gigantic trees. So he's sitting around, there's a lot of these gigantic trees like that. And so uh, you can actually, if you go to Hebron, you can still see the purported graves of Abraham and Sarah there. So at this point, God has come to Abraham and he has said, you are going to have a son. I promise you this. And the son will lead to a son that leads to a son that leads to a son that eventually leads to my son, Jesus, who will redeem and save the whole world. It has been almost 25 years since God gave this promise. And so God is showing up again to reiterate this promise to Abraham. I am going to give you a son. So it says, uh, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent, from the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, singular, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. 
Now, what is important about this is that there is three men present and it opens in the singular, the Lord. Abraham doesn't address them as my lords. He addresses them as Lord. Many scholars will point to this as the beginning of the full understanding of the Trinity. Now, you fast forward years from this. When Christianity started, the day of Pentecost hits. The Holy Spirit comes down and the disciples speak in various known languages. They went from that place in three main dialects. They go in Greek, Latin, and Syriac and many variations thereof. Three great divisions to reach the world though. By the end of the first century, you get the beginnings of what's called Syriac Christianity, Greek Christianity or Orthodox, and Latin or Western Christianity. We are products of Latin or Western Christianity. Many of these are based on the languages that came out of Pentecost. In the Far Eastern, they would have heard Syriac. In the Middle Eastern, they would have heard Greek. And the Western would have heard Latin. Now, Syriac and Greek Christianity comes to understand certain doctrines a little bit differently than the rest of those in the West. By 1405, these differences are huge in Syriac, Coptic, Egyptian, and Greek or Russian or Antiochian Christianity. And you see those differences and how they view what took place here at the oak trees of Mamre. Now, in Western Christianity, uh, what, what happens is we begin to understand the fundamental relationship between God and man in legal terms. We see it as sin and debt, so we need redemption and justification. That man is obliged to a just God that he has sinned against. And this is all true. This is very important. Yes, we need Christ to come and redeem and save us because of our sins, because of how we have wronged God. Now, the Eastern Church believes that, but that is not their focus. The theme of Orthodox theology is what is called the incarnation of God and the recreation of man. According to Orthodox theology, when a man sins, it's not, it's not just this uh, legal relationships that is violated between God and man, what he also does is he reduces the divine likeness. He inflicts a wound in the original image of God. Now, we believe that, but it's just not our focus. So we have both of these things. That element, we try to teach you both that, yes, you need to be redeemed, but God wants to turn you into who he always made you to be. For the Eastern Church, salvation would consist of the restoration of the full image of God, of Christ, the incarnate God who comes to earth to restore the icon, the image of God in man. If you ever go to an Orthodox church, you walk in, what you will see is, is a lot of stained glass, a lot of paintings, a lot of pictures, because it's the icon, it's the image that God wants to make us back into. Now, Andrei Rublev is a painter in the 1500s, and he comes up with what's called the standard, this is the standard Eastern view of this meal with Abraham. The original painting actually had Abraham and Sarah in this painting, uh, but he actually takes them out. And so this is the three who come to meet with Abraham. This is the Lord. This is the Lord. The left, over here, this is God the Father. He is the creator. In the middle is God the Son. He comes to redeem his people. He is the image of God. To the right is the Spirit who sustains his people. He recreates us into the image of God. He restores us. Now, all of their heads are bowed towards each other. This is mutual submission and equality to each other. There is a space at the front of the table, and the space at the front of the table is open, showing that God has said, yes, come back into relationship with me again. Now, where they are, in this picture, they are outside the tents at Hebron. Each, each of the people in the painting, they have wings and a staff, which should make you wonder why they have a staff, walking staff, if they got wings, because they really don't. In reality, the stick is actually a sign of authority. So each person in the painting is wearing blue. Blue signifies divinity. The creator, the father on the left has very little blue because he's covered with the Shekinah. This is the gold that covers him. It's, it, the paintings were 500 years old, so the, the gold's a little bit 
faded, but that's what's covering him, the Shekinah, the glory of the Father. And if you look, he is not touching the table in any way. Look to the, in the middle, you have the sun. He has a gold stripe on his shoulder. This proves his kingship and his glory. He's also wearing blue to show divinity, but he's also wearing a lot of brown. And this brown is to show that he came of the earth. He came as a man. He has two fingers. Two fingers are touching the table. And this is to show he is of double nature. He is fully God and fully man. In front of him is a bull. And this bull represents death and it also represents communion. On the right, you have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has His hand fully on the table. That means the Holy Spirit is fully engaged with God's people. He has blue on to represent His divinity, but mostly green, showing that He is full of life. He is the giver of life. Now behind uh, God the Father, it's very hard to see, but there is a temple, because the kind of, it's in there, it's getting a little faded. There's, there's a temple, and this is where God was worshipped. Behind the sun, there is an oak tree. This is a tree back there. It's an oak tree to show the trees of Mamre, but also to represent that tree that he was crucified upon. And then behind the spirit, there is a mountain. This is Mount Sinai, and also represents all mountains that were to come, which is Hermon, Tabor, Calvary, Zion, all the mountains that God spoke to people from human history. And when you look at the painting and you have all of this explained to you, it's almost beautiful, right? It's kind of, kind of amazing. This is the idea of full transformation when God causes us to rise and understand all that He has been doing from the very beginning of time. This is what actually brings about what's called the Nicene Creed. In 381, the church comes up with a creed to try and put all this into words. And this is the creed, the pronouncement of faith in 381 AD. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now the word Catholic doesn't mean the Catholic church like you think of it today. The word Catholic means universal. The, the early church fathers always saw one church, universal, worldwide over. And that word, it literally is Catholic. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That creed actually comes out of an earlier creed known as the Apostles' Creed, which may have been written as, few, as early as a few years after the resurrection up until the mid-150s. And this is this creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the word hell is literally the grave. It doesn't mean Jesus went to hell and was tortured. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, hand of God the Father Almighty. And thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It is like Rublev's picture. 
This is full understanding. It's the beginning of it. It's like yeast causing us to rise into those who walk in full confidence of who God is and what He's been doing since the very beginning of creation. From Genesis 1, let us, Genesis 18 at the Oaks of Mamre, to Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection and the Spirit that leads us into truth. It is like Jesus who says in John 16, 13, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now let me pull this together. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into three seahs of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then you go back, this whole idea, oh, it goes back to Abraham. Now imagine, Abraham, at this point he's a nomadic guy, he's wandering around, God has made a promise, he will have a son that leads to a son that leads to a son that leads to my son, Jesus, who will redeem the entire world. Now, Abraham comes out of Babylon. He has been a pagan. He has worshipped many gods. And God has been trying for 25 years to get Abraham to get it, speaking to him, revealing himself to him, while veiling his glory so he doesn't torch him. And then finally, one day, Genesis 18, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, Do as you say. And then Verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman, who's this woman? Sarah, took and mixed into three seahs of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is full transformation because it is full understanding. For Abraham, one year from this moment, he has his promised son. Jesus' missing words point to Abraham and Sarah's feast because it was extravagant. And leaven here is used for the best of all purposes in preparing an extravagant meal to be shared with God in full understanding and relationship with Him. Three seahs of flour is 50 pounds of flour. It is enough to feed 100 people. It is overabundance. Because when the kingdom of God transforms our lives and understanding by who He is in His revelation, we then are a people whose lives should work out in abundance of truth and grace. Three Seahs of Flower would be a story that would stick in everybody's mind. Jewish kids had to memorize the book of Genesis. Three Seahs of Flower for three people, this would stick in all of their minds. And as soon as they hear Three Seahs of Flower, they go, oh, well, that, that was Sarah. And they would go, well, what is this? And then they begin to understand full transformation, full understanding. They connect it with the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about that causes His people to rise up, be filled with His presence. Just like a mustard seed grows into a large tree, the kingdom of God and its glory properly lived out by His people, by trusting in Christ for our redemption, by Him restoring us to who He calls us to be, by following in full understanding with childlike faith causes us to be the kingdom of God that grows and expands and touches and reaches the entire world. Out of three words, three seahs of flour. It's amazing what kind of teacher Jesus was. Here are my questions for you. Have you allowed God's presence to work itself through you? How is God's presence leading you from fear and into joy? How is God's presence making you and living your life in this joy that you have known by those around you and how you live? How is that joy changing the lives to the better of those around you? 
And lastly, how are you bringing heaven to earth and expanding the kingdom of our great and glorious and triune God by how you live this full transformation, by full understanding of the kingdom of God? Now, if you're like, those questions went by really fast, they're on the back of the notes. Hopefully, you can grab some friends and you can talk about that. And again, this is one of the reasons that we come to communion. Communion, every week, is this idea of full understanding of what God is and what He has done. We come to communion and you break a piece of that bread. Actually, we have 11 loaves this morning because I wanted to do loaves with leaven so it makes a little more sense. Just don't like let it sit in the wine if you take the wine because you like suck it all up and you'll be like, woo, best church service ever. You, know? <laughs> you, you tear that off. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice to represent his, his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us in full understanding of what he has been doing since the very beginning, our triune God coming to save us as his people because he is so good. We will worship God through communion. We're going to worship God through song and the band's going to come up. And they will do a couple songs. The last song they're doing this morning is a song called Creed. If you're around in the early 90s, not the band Creed, but it's a song called Creed, you might have actually heard it. And so we're going to do that because it's actually the, the Apostles' Creed. Um, so worship God through song. We're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you are someone who has never understood this, begin to live your life in full understanding of who God is and what that looks like in terms of the kingdom of God, go and pray with them. If you've never given your life to Christ, go and pray with them. They would love to pray with you, introduce you to Jesus, and show you what he has been doing since the very beginning. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship, so we give that opportunity every single week. We worship God through fellowship. There's some cookies and stuff in the back. Get to know some other people. Maybe you can even take the notes on the back and ask each other those questions. You know, how, how is the kingdom of God living itself fully in and through you, making an impact in the world around you? Because ultimately, God just doesn't save us so we become all inwardly focused and, and just like, oh, it's all about me. Because it's not about us. It's about Him. He intends for you and I, when we become saved, to go and make a difference in the world around us. We are His hands and feet to touch the entire world. We are His people who are supposed to rise up to be who He calls us to be. Christ in us, that is the hope of glory. Because we, in turn, make that the hope of the entire world by how we live. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we, as your people, would be those who live in a way that we embrace this full understanding of what you have been doing since the very beginning. That you cause intensive transformation in us. And that transformation would then be lived out in bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. Father, we thank you for saving us, for seeking us, and for being consistent and having one plan for the foundations of the earth. And that you have been so gracious as to save us. Have us in turn live lives that are gracious and full of extravagant abundance for those around us so that we live as your children and that you are glorified. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.